Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is early April. This is going to come out April 5th. Today, uh, it's just me this week, and I have a guest on, someone I've wanted to have on the show for a long time. Uh, it's Malcolm Harris. He is the author of the new book, Palo Alto. Um, yeah, Malcolm is uh, Malcolm's a writer. He's a journalist. He is... How else should I describe you? I was going to like come out and just say Malcolm is a communist. <laughs> like, that's the, I'm a communist writer. That's my like first communist, then writer. Okay. Right. Because I wanted to, you know, one of the things I was thinking about how to introduce you, right? And I've known you for a while, right? Um, and I can verify thing, that. One of the things that's always been both striking and admirable, I think, or one of the reasons why I have always admired your work is because I think that like of all the writers that I know who are on the left, um, who are not academics, let's say, right? Because I think it's a little bit different when you're, you have sort of the safety of a tenured position or even tenure track position that like you're the most committed, I think, overtly to saying like, this is my work and this is what it's informed by, right? There's no sort of like trying to smuggle things through or, sort of gesturing towards it and saying, well, if it reaches a broader audience, is that like a, do you think that's a correct way to, to characterize things? Yeah. I always try and put things forward as, as straightforwardly as I can. Um, in my first book, in this book, in my short form writing, I try to write things in pretty objective, uh, straight way, I guess you could say. Right. Straight meaning what though? Meaning that I'm not, uh, preaching to the choir per se, right? Like uh, I'm not uh, reaffirming the the reader's point of view and constantly telling them that I share it. It's informed by that. But in terms of the voice, I'm going to try and write it relatively straight. And then that's the grounding for when I don't do that, which I also sometimes don't do, right? Uh, So I I realized I think that one of my main uh, inspirations as a writer is the narrator from the Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons from when I was a child where you've got this sort of like formally like very straight narration that sort of then allows it to dip in and out of like uh, subjective comments um, without like breaking form. Oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's interesting to me because you, we have had this, I think this kind of surprising, at least in, I think really in the time that we've known each other, right. We've had this surprising influx of people who, are on the left who have invaded these legacy publications in a way that I don't think would have ha- was going on, let's say even in like 2002 or something like that. Right. Like, uh, Oh no, definitely much, not. Yeah. Much more people now who, if you ask them would call themselves socialists or Marxists or something like that. And they're all working at these big publications and some of them are more outward about it than others. But generally the game is that one smuggles it through. Right. Um, you do not now. I don't think anyone would start a piece out by saying like I am a Republican or I'm a liberal Democrat or I'm whatever. Right. But that I think for people on the left, the challenge is always sort of like, how can you kind of nudge people? Right. Because you know who your readers are. Your readers are not going to be socialists. They're not going to be leftists. They're generally going to be like Joe Biden type of reasonable, uh, you know, in big quotes, like reasonable Democrats, right? Like who are over the age of 50, like that's who reads these types of publications. And you know that if you just go straight Bernie bro, or if you go straight Marx, that it's going to be difficult 
and you probably are going to be out of a job at some point pretty quickly. <laughs> in your book, you write about like, I didn't even know this guy existed, but there was like a guy in like the aughts even who at the times who was a columnist who was basically Bob like, Herbert. Right. I didn't know that person existed. <laughs> I guess he's been I guess he's been erased from memory or something like that. Right. But like you're arguing that he's been put he was pushed out for a lot of these reasons. I think that a lot of people do feel that pressure. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and I don't have a job. Like, don't go around telling people that I've got a job because uh, right. uh, that's what part of what gives me that freedom. Um, and I'm for everybody who knows me, I'm kind of just irrepressible. And it's not like a strategic choice. That's just sort of the the way I am. And there are definitely consequences. Uh, so, like, I've I've never had a job, and no one's ever tried to hire me, <laughs> basically, uh, because I would be a, a hard employee to have. And at the yeah. same time, it's true I've I've been able to make a living as a freelance writer for many years now, a whole career out of it, um, despite those political attachments. So I don't know. I, I think one of the ways that those people that you were talking about try to smuggle their politics in is by hiring me to write stuff for as long as they can until somebody calls them on it. That is true. That is true. I thought you more, you know, I'm just really talking about myself here as always, but, um, or well, thank people. you for having me on the podcast, Jay. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about the book a little bit, right? And I want to look. I we do a lot of writerly talk here, and I think that we should do a little bit of it here because I was interested in this book. Right now, for the listeners who don't know, like Malcolm has written a six hundred plus page history of Palo Alto, um, which is where you grew up. Uh, and I remember when you told me about this book, I was really excited about it when you were working on it because I was like, "Well, that is really the type of book that I want to read that you wrote." Right. Not that your first book wasn't, but like, you know, something huge and ambitious that that sort of brought in a lot of history that was something that you felt very passionately about. But also was this history that I was interested in. Right. Like I don't live too far from Palo Alto. In fact, I live in like, well, I don't know. What would you call it? Like the poor man's Palo Alto. <laughs> <laughs> Can any of us live live far from Palo Alto now? Yeah. Um, so I was very interested and in, I've always been interested with the university. Right. Like, what is that space? And so reading the book like i i was i found it very revelatory and generative but then i also had this i was like well what would possess you to write like a 600 page book about this right like why why so big like you know why why did you go like the entire history because this like is from the ohlone basically onward yeah i mean i really do the whole full history of palo alto from the 1870s when it's founded to 2020, right? I had to cut it off at some point. I can't say the present. And like, unfortunately, Palo Alto history was definitely occurring as I was writing. And so I had to sort of catch up to it. Um, and there's a danger, I think, in being too presentist with a lot. Of, a lot of Bay Area history is very presentist and is very like focused on whatever it is that's going on at that moment and sort of drawing back from that. Um, and I think a lot of those books have a short shelf life because whatever it is that they're looking at when they're writing doesn't necessarily last very long and they don't have a firm anchor in like the longer durée history. And so I really wanted, and no one had done this book before. So part of the reason I wanted to do this book this way is because no one had done it before. No one had done yeah. the whole full history of Palo Alto straight through. And no one even like claims to have, right. It's not like I'm saying like, no one's done this. I'm saying like, literally no one has said like, yeah, Oh, I'm so going to take like it. History professor is trying to cancel you online. Is he not aware of my work? Um, 
you're right. The, a lot of the Bay Area stuff, especially, you know, in the areas in which people now associate with uh, Palo Alto, it's so the books are so present that almost by the po- point where they're published, they're out of date. Yeah. Right. It's always like, here's how some geniuses did X. Right. Like that's right. the most popular one. It's a business book and it's about some dudes in a Well, it's not even that anymore. Right. It's not some dudes in a garage. But there are all sort of variations on Barbarians at the Gate, which is a great business book, except like. The barbarians are the good guys, you know, in some right. ways. And they're like, we're, we're disrupting. You How know, we like, built the metaverse. And it's like, right. there, there is no metaverse. <laughs> yeah, there's no metaverse. But anymore. there's a bestseller about how we built the metaverse. Right. <laughs> there's got to be 12 books about the metaverse. <laughs> and the people who won, that, who won that race are the ones who like turned it in really quickly. Right. Like, exactly. <laughs> right. Those are the, the biggest, the biggest moneymakers on the metaverse is the guy who sold the book first on yeah. how to make money on the metaverse. <laughs> if it took you six months to write the metaverse book, you're dead <laughs> uh, but so i wanted something that wasn't like that um and so i really did this whole outline when i was doing the research and i was so i started i was writing this like during the pandemic i was reading you know 10 hours a day came up with this outline that i still have in a file cabinet somewhere that was a giant piece of paper that i got and i split it horizontally into five sections that did the whole the, which are the five sections of the book which are you know 1850 to 1900, 1900 to 1945, 45 to 75, 75 to 2000, 2000 to 2020. Right. And then I broke those up and I got five index cards for each section and I broke each section into chapters. And then I took small sticky notes and added them, the sticky notes to the chapters so that I had this whole outline where any character or any like story that I wanted to put in the book. Um, I had it on the board and I could draw connections in between the sections and I knew like where things were going to go and how it was all going to relate to each other and how things were going to be, you know, referring back uh, through a hundred years or like how I was going to have everything represented by the sections. And that changed a little bit while I was writing. Like I didn't want to write that much about Herbert Hoover originally, but I had to, I didn't want to write about World War II at all. I was like, ah, I'm so smart. I'm going to skip World War II. Absolutely not. Could not do that. Um, But pretty much that outline was my outline. That was the book. And then I sat down to write a sample chapter. I took a chapter from the middle, actually, where I felt like I had the most material and I was ready to write a chapter. Um, And I wrote a draft and I felt really good about it. And the only problem was it was three times as long as it was supposed to be. And I realized that every chapter was going to be three times as long as it was supposed to be. And so I, I sold the book, I think, at 80,000 words. Um, and I turned in uh, a quarter million. And I told yeah. my, I told my editor. Bucks. That's like five bucks for me. <laughs> I told my editor <laughs> along the way, uh, for the record, I wasn't just, didn't just like drop the pile on like the due date. I, I also hit my, I hit my delivery date also I hit oh, the same yeah. delivery date with three times as many words. Well, that's impressive. It doesn't feel like you rushed it when I was reading it, but like, um, I, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to start at this introduction that you write. Right. And it was something I didn't know. Um, and you frame it in this way that I thought was quite clever in which you sort of give a confession to the reader, right? And your confession to the reader is basically, this is why I wrote this book. I'm haunted by this thing that happened over and over and over again when I was growing up in Palo Alto, but I'm not going to talk about it anymore. You know, like me as the narrator only appears here and the rest of this is something else, right? But I thought it was a very interesting frame in that 
you know, while reading and listening to the book, I was thinking back on that, you know, I was like, well, how do you get there? So like, what was the thing that happened, right? Like, what is the thing that at the beginning of this book, you sort of use as a device to propel everything forward? And I'm sure you also sincerely like thought about a lot. Yeah. So you're talking about the suicides, right? I presume, Um, which is that, yeah. So starting when I got into high school, Palo Alto became known nationally, really internationally even um, for a high youth suicide rate. And young people in particular started um, dying by suicide on these train tracks that run through both of the high schools. And so we had a, I think that the rate ended up being about five times as high as the state average for youth suicides during this period. And they, it sort of got like social scienceified into this discussion about suicide clusters. And like there was an Atlantic cover story and there's a lot of journalism about these suicides that was always really unsatisfying for me because it was all very surface level and none of it ever got to like, what is it about this weird place? Cause it is a weird place. And it was obvious to everyone at the time that these suicides were related to the specifics of this place that it just was, it wasn't like some general happening or whatever, but that it related to Palo Alto and what Palo Alto was. And the CDC ends up coming in and doing a 200 page report on the phenomenon that has like no real answers. There are all these journalistic efforts. There are documentaries made. This is like a, you know, phenomenon that's attracted a a fair amount of media attention and analysis. Um, And all of it has been completely unsatisfying to me as someone who was growing up there, whose siblings were there, who's, you know, lost people in my community. And I wanted to find a different way to approach it, find a like historical sociological way to approach it with some of the best tools that I've learned there and learned um, since then. And the way I pitched that book is actually pretty different than the one it turned out, not only because it was much longer, but because originally it did have a lot more of me in it. It was, you know, right. Um, and I think for writers in my cohort and your cohort, uh, especially those of us without terminal degrees, this is sometimes how you access the authority to write these historical stories is through the the interweaving of your personal experience and your own history um, through that more general history. And I did try to do that. I have those files on the computer like they exist. Uh, I deleted them. They're not very good. Uh, I, I'm just not as good at that stuff. And it doesn't mean that other people, that it isn't really good when it's in other people's hands. I thought you do well. Um, you know, other people have done it exceptionally well. I think uh, me, I'm not very good at it. And the, the, when I was writing my history, you know, up against and, and with this broader history, it just was not working. Did it feel like that it wasn't? Because you're talking about like the history of that you write about in some ways, like some of it is very technical, right? And some of it is very, like, you know, like you do a very extended metaphor, for example, about how, like, I don't even remember what it was, like some amplifier works, right? With like uh, dead antelopes and hyenas on one side or something like that, right? Is that right? Or cheetahs on one side, right? Yes. And so like there's, it's it's that. And then it's like Chinese exclusion, Japanese internment. It's, uh, you know, like, labor coming in, agriculture, all this sort of stuff. It's all there. And then I was thinking about it myself. I was like, how would you even weave it in there? You know, like, how do you insert yourself? Like your parents moving there, I assume was like a, 
was like a you know it's just like why people move somewhere right like because you were born in santa cruz right and you came over the hill right and i'm sure that there was reasons for that but like um it's not like some long arc of history sweeps everybody up and then ends up in this one place right it's a little bit different than for example writing about the history of immigration and saying my parents are immigrants and therefore they're part of this history. Is that right? Like, is that? Well, sort of in the same, at the same time though, like, so my dad's parents moved with my dad to uh, the Bay area in the mid sixties. Uh-huh. And that is an immigration, like a right, migration right. story, right? We don't talk about it as a migration story or as a settlement story, but it is, it's absolutely a settlement right. story. You know, that's within a hundred years of those lands being settled by Anglo-Americans for the first time. Um, so that's like the equivalent of, you know, settling on the East coast of the United States in like the 1600s, right? Like that's, that's the 1960s for Anglo-American settlers um, in California. And so I think of myself as a, a grandchild of settlers of California and coming to understand their lives as a, a settlement narrative and as a migration narrative was pretty important. And I think I wanted to write a book where almost anyone who lives in California can draw their story or can see their story in the book and can draw their past into it. Not just like as soon as they set foot in California, do they start being a part of the story, but like, you know, the history of Japan back to the mid 19th century is part of the history of California, right? Right. Like consistently through that whole period. It's not like when a Japanese person sets foot in California, their life starts to matter to California history. It's like their grandparents' lives mattered to California history. It's part of the same world. And so trying to dislodge California from this sort of national history lens into a global history lens uh, allowed me to see not just, other people's stories, but also my own story as a story of settlement at the same time. Like I don't like, uh, I didn't particularly want to tell the story of like my dad's parents in this book. Right. Like that's not what my goal was. Yeah. It would have been weird. Honestly, I don't like, even if you had done it well, I think that this, I don't know, it would have been, you would have had to do it a lot for it to not feel tacked on. Right. And then you would have had like a gigantic, gigantic book where I think that a lot of people who might not be vibing with that would feel knocked out of the story in some sort of way. Do you know what I mean? Like, I I think it was the right choice. Um, Yeah. And in terms of trading sentences, in terms of word count, like I was already, you know, uh, this was as long as it could be, right? You basically like, you can't publish, I couldn't have published a longer book than this. I'm amazed they gave me this many pages, but they weren't going to give me any more. Like this, this was, <laughs> this was it. And so uh, like, they're like, I, I feel bad that there's not a like fully detailed bibliography in the book. Right. Oh, that's why it's because of the, they're like, we can't. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's yeah, just, yeah. there was no more pages. I mean, to yeah. add, like we had to add another folio to get it, made it 720 instead of 704. And like, that was a drama. Oh, and yeah. so like, I literally could not have added any more words. Google Docs cut me off, you know? Like, <laughs> okay. All right. So, like, you proceed then basically saying that this is a ghost story, right? Like, it is a ghost story in that you feel like Palo Alto is haunted. And it's not just haunted because of these kids who you know or who are part of your community who started, you know, were part of this. I don't even know how to put it, but like, you know, suicide, rash of suicides or something like that. Right. Um, but that it is haunted for other reasons and that, that this is 
your exploration of it starts like right at the beginning. And so I just wanted to, I wanted to touch on a couple of places because we don't have enough time to do all of it. Right. But I do think that you have this thesis running through and I want you to tell me if you think the thesis is right or wrong. I think that the thesis that you have that is running through California or, you know, Palo Alto is that Palo Alto and California, even at a, at large, right. is a story of somewhat unacceptable men, right. Who come in and, they don't really invent anything. They don't really do much, but they find themselves in these positions where people, I think the phrase you made said was like, other people are making money for them, right? And the number one person that you start with or the big person, the first person you really focus on here is Leland Stanford, who obviously is the namesake of the university and uh, is one of sort of the big figures in early California history. And I think you describe him that way, right? You say like Leland Stanford was somebody who other people made money for. Right. And that the demographics of California are basically people who are brought in to make that money for that person. Right. And you see that over and over again. You see that in um, Silicon Valley, for example, where you have like first you have like a Vietnamese population that's brought in to work in the like what was semiconductor plants? Is Mm -hmm. that right? Right. And that that if you go down to San Jose, you see that population right um, down in San Jose. And you have H-1B visa workers who were brought in to work in tech, right, at early tech. And then they sort of go out to places like, oh, I don't know, like Hayward, or they go out to still San Jose, or they go out to Cupertino, they go out to all these sort of valley suburbs. And then there's a huge Chinese population. There's a huge Indian population in those areas. And then, and then you know, on and on and on, all the way to like the, fo- you know, Elon Musk and the people who are working at Twitter right now, that like there, there are people who are good at getting other people to make money for them and that California in some ways are, is the people who are brought in to do that. Is that, do you think that's a fair thesis? Cause that, that is sort of the thing that I got over and over again that I found very compelling. Cause I have not honestly not really thought of the state in that sort of way. Yeah. Well, and what is, what does a capitalist do, but get other people to make money for them. Right. right. And so California is this world headquarters of figuring out new ways to get people to make money for you. Right. Uh, and they're really good at it. And so when people say like, Oh, they don't really do anything. Uh, like sometimes that's true. Like there are definitely like scammers um, who take advantage of the, the, the scene or whatever, you know um, my, my father's father was one of them. Uh, you know, the, Wait, what did he do? <laughs> I don't know too much of the story, um, <laughs> but that's part of it. Um, you should have put that one in there. Mike. Well, there's a lot, there's a lot of it. And so it's funny because also people who know me also will see my story throughout the story and will be like, ha, I know what you're talking about. Like, that's you or like, that's your dad or like, <laughs> um, so I talk about like score tutoring center or whatever and talk about right, like right, right. a whole thing about score tutoring center. And I don't say like I worked at score tutoring center and like that was my job and uh, I was part of this or whatever. And I talk about the agriculture and the truck farms and I don't say like, oh, I worked for a truck farm uh, in Mountain View and like that was my first job was unloading these oranges. And, like, you know, I could have done that. Like I had a version where I do that. You, know, you have the, tr- the story about the truck farms and then I talk about unloading oranges at six in the morning on Sundays or whatever. It's like, I didn't want to do that. Right. was not very good. Um, but so as a, as a history of capitalist development, um, they're constantly figuring out new ways to get people to make more money for them. 
And part of that is the kind of technological development that we think of, of like inventing new computers and that they sort of frame as the existential development of human capacity and knowledge or whatever, as opposed to like one commodity direction or whatever. Uh, But as much as the, the regions about that, as much as Palo Alto means technology development, uh, it's as at least as much about developing labor relations and like efficiencies can come from developing new technologies, but they can also come from like making people work more for less. Right. Right. And that is sort of that, that it, like, let's start with the, one of the histories that you give there and then we can move on to that. Cause I think that basically everyone listening right now is probably thinking about the way in which, you know, maybe like tech workers are being, paid and you know what they would be paid if they weren't and who the replacements are but this all starts sort of with the railroad right um and that you give this long history of it i want to like i i i texted you yesterday and i was like i'm at the i went yesterday i went to sacramento to watch a king's game with my daughter and we went to the california railroad museum and it was striking to me in that like you know like Okay, so like, guess who is at the guess? Guess who the main target of the California Railroad Museum is? Like, guess who they're trying? To <laughs> Bay Area liberals, uh, <laughs> little children, little children. <laughs> yeah, yeah, little kids. I, mean, I guess love that makes trains. sense. Who wants to go yeah. to the to the, the the train museum? They love trains, you know. Um, and so you go in there, and the first room that you go in there is a uh, gigantic train, right? Like that's what the train museum is. It's like a bunch of old trains that are inside a building. It's it's actually quite cool. Like I was very happy at my. We stayed two hours in the museum. I went with my friend and his kid too. And um, it's for Bay Area dads who like it's for trains. Bay Area dads, yeah, 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 yeah. And and his uh, his wife was there too. I think she enjoyed it. Everybody enjoyed it. Like it was like very enjoyable, but. Uh, you go in and you're with your kids and your kids are like trains. And then there's this giant train and has Leland Stanford, uh, ri- governor Stanford written across the side of it. And then they have this mannequin of Leland Stanford in the conductor. <laughs> As if he's conducting the train. Yeah. A real thing yeah. that he did. He's like, yeah, yeah, he's like following the train. He's following the whistle or something like that. Right. And, then all around it is this huge exhibit about exploited Chinese labor. And I was shocked, honestly, you know, now I wasn't, sh- I wasn't shocked in the sense that I know that like, you know, museums are going woke or whatever, right? Like that is a thing, right? But I was like, the volume of it was really surprising to me. And it was very interesting to me that they would start the story of California trains, right? The California train museum, they would start it with a story about ch- exploited Chinese labor and like it was kind of cool as that. Like I was like, whoa, this is really cool. And then you go to the rest of the thing and you're like, this is weird because the rest of it is just like, here's another train. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't this train cool? Like there's no politics or history about the rest of it. It's literally just like, this is a dining train. Like, does it look comfortable to eat here? You know, here's the China for what the you know, like a a luxury train in 1946 was like. You know, here's one from 1972. Um, and so, yeah, they give this history too. And it was, it was fascinating to me. So like, yeah, why, 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 why'd you spend so much time on this question? Right? Like, um, basically I think just to summarize for the listeners, Leland Stanford and his partners are trying to, well, you tell the story, right? Like what, what were they, what was their first sort of big score here? 
so Leland Stanford, who's a sort of a schmuck, right? He's comes from a, a family whose fortunes are on the rise because they happen to own a, a tavern that happens to be near the newly constructed Erie Canal. And so like by the luck of history, your sons are going to go to college, you know, <laughs> like that, that was the situation for the Stanford family. Um, and Leland is the younger brother, uh, not very good at anything. His career as a lawyer flounders after all of his law bur- books burn up in a fire, but it wasn't going that well anyway, because he was like working in a town full of German immigrants and he didn't speak German. Um, and so his solution, he's like out of luck, uh, He's going to go go west, going to go join his brothers who have set up this grocery concern in California around the, the gold rush. And famously, everyone, kids who grow up in California learn very early, it's not about the gold. It's about the business you set up, you know, around the gold. And, Is that uh, a lesson you learn in California? Oh, yeah, in like fourth grade. It's like, like, it reminded me of Deadwood, you know, how like uh, uh, the sheriff is he's doing a hardware store with his partner, right? Like, well, these were really the, that was the, the petty capitalists of the West at the time, right? Right. That was how you, there was a capitalist class didn't really exist out here yet. It was being, being created and people didn't want to go out there because again, you could die. (laughs) It was very easy to die and it was really gross and there were no chicks. And so it was like, really like as, as a guy, you went there and again, from not just from, the rest of the United States, but from Sonora, from Argentina, from China, from France, from, you know, all over the world, seeking your fortune, going to get some gold and get out of there. That was like most people's orientation towards the gold rush from most places around the world. Because again, for settlers, shitty place to live, like real, real lousy edge of the world. And so for the guys who stayed, who set up these shops, they were the, this, uh, leading edge of the capitalist class out in what was effectively an overseas colony. Because before you've got the transcontinental railroad, California is literally an overseas colony, right? If you want to get there, you, your best bet is by boat. If you're right. unlucky, you got to go overland. And then that's through a bunch of other nations, right? There are like sovereign Indian nations where you're going to get shot uh, trying to get out to California. So the capitalists who are building up this overseas colony more or less, are relatively like petty grocery guys. And Leland Stanford was part of this crew of guys who nicknamed themselves the Associates. And they all had like these hardware grocery stores, but they were looking for some like next score. And this guy named Theodore Judah, who was sort of the the first Wozniak, right? He's the first guy who was really focused on the, the tech and the answers. And <laughs> he had to find his, his capitalists. Right, right. Um, And he's going around pitching this idea of, I know a way to get through the Sierra Nevadas to make a transcontinental railroad on a northern like line. Because there was a debate there, if you're going to build a transcontinental, is it going to go through the south or is it going to go through the north? And they meant very different things. And Theodore Judah says, I've got this way through the Sierra Nevadas, which is the main thing that's blocking the transcontinental railroad from being built. And he's got a road he thinks can make it happen. Uh, and the associates decide to to invest a very very small amount of money in this plan. Like it ends yeah, up being like, like twenty thousand. It's like twenty grand. You yeah. know, it's like not much money because again, they don't have that much. They're not like it's not Rockefeller or whatever. These are just like some hardware store owners to back this plan for uh, a road that could become a railroad. And they're like, if it doesn't work, we'll just turn it into a a, a toll road. They try to get out of the deal and sell it to like other people as soon as they get into it. 
you know, they have no real hope or plan for this transcontinental. Theodore Judah dies. Um, but what happens is the Civil War breaks out. And so this deadlock that's going on in Congress about is it going to go through the South or the North, which uh, really couldn't be broken until the Civil War and the South secession, because both sides wanted the railroad to secure their part in the Union. Um, suddenly, the South can't block the railroad anymore, and you've got lots of votes for the railroad in the North, as well as support for Republicans on the West, which were sort of the like third place party at the time. Leland Stanford, as a sort of luckless goon, is that that you know the head guy of the Republican Party on the West Coast that no one really cares about until the Civil War breaks out, and then suddenly he's like Lincoln's trusted West Coast advisor, Leland Stanford this fucking goofy hardware store owner. So he goes very quickly from being a petty capitalist to being the face of capital on the West coast. This rich guy who makes a bunch of money, you know, illegitimately off the railroad, not by the railroad itself, but by owning the like rail contracting companies or the land development companies or uh, other really like sketchy ways to make money off this contract. He becomes governor of California. He serves a, a term. He serves a term as a senator from California once California becomes a state and enters the Senate. And he gets himself sort of appointed. You don't have direct election yet. So he gets himself sort of like made senator. Um, and he really stands up in front because he's the least competent of this crew of guys in the associates. And they all decide like, look, if the workers are going to kill somebody or if the government's going to like investigate somebody, if somebody's going to have to answer for everything we've been doing over all these years, it might as well be Leland. Like he's, <laughs> he, he's the one. And so when I say that, uh, you know, Leland didn't make any money, but had a bunch of money made for him. That's not me. That's one of his associates. Like that's one of his buddies. So even at the time they were all talking all sorts of shit about this guy um, and writing right, all sorts right. of stuff about this guy, like not an admired businessman, but he sort of dies before the bill comes due. And it's his widow, Jane, who gets his uh, bequest out of in trouble with the federal government and gets it secured and put into what becomes Stanford University. Um, and so they, they sort of get away with it. And that, that getting away with it is Leland Stanford Junior University and Palo Alto. Um, yeah, that let, let's go back a tiny bit, right? Because like one of the things that he is blamed for, right? Even though he wasn't so instrumental in this, but uh, blamed for by the people who ultimately sort of, you know, the people who everyone was like, okay, if they're gonna, if these people are gonna be mad at Leland at somebody, let's have it be Leland. Is that he is in some ways, the face of bringing Chinese labor into the railroad system, right? And there were Chinese people in America before, right? But that um, what happened at this point was that they, a lot of them had been put into domestic work, which is whether, you know, laundries and stuff like that. And that the rails brought in a lot of new migrants that were paid, like, what well, is like two thirds of what like they would have pay, paid a white person, right? And that like a lot of the very early, like you can sort of see the beginnings of the types of stereotypes or whatever, right? That start to, that sort of follow Asian people around in this country that people are like, oh, they're so industrious. They they, they work, they don't complain, mm -hmm. right? Um, they have all these, these amazing inventive ways of lowering themselves down mountain passes and baskets and stuff like that. I was reading that, right? And, well, um, it's, I mean, it's true. I mean, part of the, 
it was it's this very funny discussion among the associates when they're like, okay, so how do we get laborers who can build this railroad that we can right. afford who don't have uh, recourse to settling, being settlers? Because they had this problem where if they would get, they got Irish workers and then there's a silver strike and then all the Irish workers are gone because they're going to go to the silver strike. Mm-hmm. Um, but during the gold rush, there had been all these, um, it's really the foundation of, you know, Anglo-American law on the West Coast was the exclusion of foreign miners from mining claims. So Chinese miners would come and, you know, Mei Nai has a good book about this recently about like immigrants from China who came with the gold strike, who were looking to get some gold and go back home just like everybody else was, who were like adventure seekers, uh, you know, looking to get some gold. And what happens is once there, the Anglo-Americans sort of edge everybody out and says, you know, you can't have the gold. This is our gold. And so you have for they institute a foreign miners tax and, um, edge the the Chinese population out of the mines into other kinds of work. And because there is a a real like egregious deficit of women on in California at that point, there's a lot of labor that is traditionally designated to women um, that then was picked up by the Asian immigrants because those were segregated labor market opportunities that were available to them. Also because they were better cooks than they had like a more sophisticated culinary tradition than the Anglo American (laughs) miners. Like seriously, like they like knew how to cook vegetables, like literally. And so the, you see these stereotypes like, and these stereotypical associations of Chinese workers and then more broadly Asian workers, uh, you know, more racistly generalized and domestic work in this period. But then you, with the, the railroad, you have this discussion among the associates of like, sure, we could bring all these workers in from China, but can like, can Chinese guys build stuff? Right. And they, it says like, well, they built that big old wall. So right, like, right. probably <laughs> they can build stuff. And like, actually they were much more sophisticated and like had a deeper experience of building stuff than any of the, the other workers that they were competing with. And so they like bring in these like famous miners from um, the UK to like have a like competition about who could like lay more track faster and the Chinese workers like crush them. Uh, So it it was like, it was skilled labor, right? It wasn't just that they got these guys for cheap. And in the skit, like, yeah, there was global labor arbitrage going on where they could pay these workers less than they were paying uh, white workers. But in terms of labor opportunities that were available to those workers, uh, work on the railroad was pretty good. And like their consumption, which is how you could measure their like wage really at this time, was pretty good. Like they ate pretty good. They sent money back. Um, it wasn't like, slave labor or coolie labor or something like that. It was, it was skilled construction labor. But at the same time, you had this, the working men's party uh, develop this real antagonism towards the Chinese workers who were coming in and they saw as threatening their place in the labor market. Right, right. And it was those people who started to protest at Leland Stanford's house, right? Which if you know San Francisco at all, it used to be on the top of Knob Hill, and then to get away from that, he decides, I'm going to move a little bit away. And he starts this 
uh, ranch or farm right uh, down, and there's a big tree, and he calls it Palo Alto, which I think is means tall tree. Right? It does, and there <laughs> is there is a tree in particular by the railroad tracks um, that you know the Portola exhibition camped under and wrote about from the beginning of Spanish colonization, and so it's there's like this notable tree uh, that they named it after. Is it still there? Oh yeah, oh yeah, All it's right. right by it's right by Palo Alto High School. Oh, Palo Alto really is weird. I guess we should have talked about that at the beginning. Every time I go there, I'm just like weirded out. I don't really, I don't think it's like a haunting thing, but I just don't understand. Like who lives here? Everything feels empty, you know? Intentionally. Even Stanford campus, I'm like, I've Ghost never campus, seen. campus, right? There's I've no people there. student on Stanford campus. Never. You know? You and so them- I used to go there as a kid, as a teenager, because it was a, the best place to loiter. Because you could go there, smoke cigarettes, sit around, <laughs> read your book, and like no one would ever bother you. Uh, and it was the only place in town you go, and no one would ever bother you, look at you twice. I know. I remember I was like, the first time I went there, I like that gigantic quad or whatever that they had, you know? And I was there, and I was like, is school out or something? You know, like, where, where are the, are the students and you kind of have to search for them it's just a very very weird place but part of that is because it's a huge campus it's and they've so got big. thousands of so acres big? because uh there was a, a rule put in with the founding of the school that they could never sell any of the land yeah. and so they still hold eight thousand acres and if you think about eight thousand acres like in general not like that much land but you think about eight thousand acres in the bay area and like no one has eight thousand acres in the Bay Area. No, <laughs> like, it's crazy. Like a quarter, a qu- like an eighth of an acre is worth like two million dollars. Right. Like so that. this is unfathomable value. Right. Is this territory? Right. And and because they were not able to realize any of that value except through like renting and leasing it, and building up the school itself, and building the community, and controlling the value of the community, uh, it has led to this very weird place. And it's true. It's like it, part of that what's so weird about it and why the school is so empty is that it's determined to be such an elite institution that it can't let anyone in, even as it has all this tons and tons of space in this place that everyone wants to be. And so that emptiness is like what they're going for, right? Like that's what it, that's what makes it valuable at the same time. It's like thoroughly unpleasant and like pretty weird. And so you're walking very, around very and, unpleasant, and you I can't find. see like you see like two or three people at a time just like on this huge campus. And it looks like like everyone got murdered or something. Like, it looks like a neutron bomb went off or something. And yeah, most of the people you see are really far away, you know, because it's like kind of like the, those areas are super flat. Like I just like I just find it strange. I just can't imagine. I don't I didn't go there and I have not spent that much time on campus, but I've spent enough time on campus where during different times where I can like kind of get a sense of things. And like, I just have never been to a campus that, that that's that empty here at Cal, right. In Berkeley, like there, like it feels sometimes like there's a billion kids walking towards oh, you yeah. at once. And you're just like, Oh, so that's, you know, it's bad in some ways, especially post COVID where you're just like, don't get me sick. All of you are disgusting. <laughs> you diseased. <laughs> there's that but at least it feels full of life you know even though all the kids feel stressed out to me you know i'm just like why aren't you like don't you guys have fun but at least i see them you know and stanford is just like where are you it's it's a strange place but here hold on let's go on to a let's let we're gonna skip around a bit so like that's where like sort of stanford gets started it's leland stanford moves there because like all the people who are mad at him about the 
or say that they're mad about him about the Chinese or sort of are screaming at outside of his window every day because everyone knows where he lives, right? Uh, this is a thing that I talk about or I've thought about a lot, and I I noticed that you spent a lot of time on it, right? Um, you spent a lot of time here on we're fast forwarding quite a bit here, so you spent a lot of time on the radical 60s and the 70s in the bay area and um you give a history and you know like this is a history that i think a lot of people have written about but i found it very interesting because i was like well why is malcolm writing i'm uh, uh, you know i apologize if i'm like trying to get it in your head here but you can tell me no, no do it it's fun yeah. more, more fun to i was like why is malcolm writing all this history right like about uh about snack why is he writing about the Panthers, why is he writing about sort of the third worldist movements that started Nairobi University that was started in East Palo Alto, for example, like, you know, like, why, why is he writing about that? Now, East Palo Alto, Nairobi University, I sort of understood because it was a little bit more, uh, you know, it's right next to Palo Alto. So it'd be difficult to write about Palo Alto, East Palo Alto, because that's like a huge part of that. Um, and the black population in East Palo Alto is a big part that history is like basically erased now, right? Like uh, there used to be like all sorts of like music venues down there in East Palo Alto where jazz bands, all sorts of things would go through. And now all of that is paved over and the black population in East Palo Alto is basically disappeared, right? Like, um, or like it's mostly disappeared. It's been replaced by a uh, Latino immigrant uh, population. And then also like very small portions of, of tech people, but also the massive campuses of like Facebook and some of these other companies are down there too now. So like my thought was that you were writing about this because like you're giving in some ways an alternative to like this sort of capitalism uh, that you're seeing within the history of California and these sort of like unremarkable men who sort of marshal and change the world by just getting people to work for them. Right. Um, and that this was sort of like your hopeful thing and that you read there's a lot of energy in the sections that you wrote about these movements right like uh about what could have been like so you tell me like why why did you spend so much time in this in this one like in this area because like i would say of the spaces in which you fill some of this history is so novel it's so new you know and this one is one i think that like you know there's a lot, mm -hmm. like a lot of people have written about it, right? Yeah. Like a lot of, there's a lot about this sort of stuff. So yeah, you tell me. Yeah, it's true. Um, although not as much about some of it, you know, it's not the, the connections, especially between Palo Alto and some of this, these movements right. um, have not been as well developed. And so I want to talk about that. But for me, I think it was important to rewrite, do a little revisionism on the history of the new left because the predominant history, especially the predominant Bay Area history of this period and um, these people is the one about the hippies inventing the computer, right? And there's the, the hippies invented the computer and that's good and the hippies invented the computer and that's bad. Um, whether it's like the, inter the internet and the Grateful Dead are sweet or like... Why don't you explain that a little bit? What do you mean the hippies invented the computer? So the, the dominant history that you get of this period from books like uh, what the Dormouse said, uh, like John Markoff one, is that the, the hippies, that there's this movement coming out of Palo Alto in the Bay Area that is like sort of political, that is seeing the world in a new way, that is inspired by uh, the 60s. 
and then takes combines that with advances in technology to produce the world of the personal computer, which includes the internet. Right. Uh, and that they take the technology from the big science, big institution, state era um, of the post-war period into the era of the personal computer um, and the internet that we know today. And through fig- figures like Stuart Brand and Steve Jobs uh, bring that ethos forward into the, the tech industry. And that story has been told a number of times Uh in a number of different ways. And part of that history involves erasing the new left or misunderstanding the new left and what the new left was about. So in some versions, that means writing them as sort of dumbasses who didn't realize that they were like conservative and that they were creating a new like conservative neoliberal world or either dumbasses who were anti-technology and didn't know what they were talking about and were standing in the way and were just like cosplaying politics or whatever, um, but didn't understand history. And I think that's wrong. I think that whole, that whole understanding is wrong and that these people were incredibly sophisticated, uh, very thoughtful, very understanding of their world and were stuck in a, a very complicated historical situation and were trying to be actors in it. Um, right. And, reviewing some of the stuff that they came up with, you know, and if you look at the way someone like H Bruce Franklin, who's I think a, a main character in that section in that book and is a, a leader of the left in Palo Alto during the late sixties and early seventies, as well as an English professor at Stanford, the way he gets written about if he does get written about, and he does sometimes in these like tech histories is really insulting. And like, really it does not uh, line up with, the stories about this guy that I've read that I end up reading in the like left-wing histories of this period um, just does not get integrated into that sort of business history story at all. They have to ridicule these people and uh, make them out to be uh, really like, like um, dumb and like feckless. And that just has nothing to do with the people that I saw in these historical documents. Right. Right. It, it does feel like in some ways it's like, well, the Bay Area used to be known for X and now it's known for tech. And, you know, you see it in some of the resentments, I think, that some of the young tech people have towards like the hippies or whatever. Right. Like, it, I don't even think that this is I'm talking about this wave. I'm talking like even in the 90s. Right. Like the dot com boom and everything like that, where there's all these talks about how we're reinvent, like we're reinventing this this area. It's going to be this new thing. And I think in some ways that's true, right? It's very different, right? There's different types of people here, but but yeah, I don't I don't know if there's been like a full expunging of, you know, the things that you were talking about either, right? Even though sometimes it can feel a little bit like maybe that is, right? Like if you go to like Revolution Books here in Berkeley, you can kind of, you know, there's you some residue. The you see the posters for Bob Avakian and you're like, all right, well, you know, I guess they're still here. Yeah. Someone's still holding on. No, it's, it's true. Right. There are, there are still remnants and, you know, but there were more when I was growing up, you know, there are fewer now. And so they're fading yeah. away pretty fast. And I think about like my connection to these histories was so often through used books. And I didn't know that the people who read those books and uh, maybe even printed those books and left them for me at, $2 a pop at, at the many used bookstores of the Bay area that were there when I was growing up, I didn't know that they were part of this movement. Right. And that they were like 
reading these books as part of a social struggle that they were involved in. I didn't like think about it that way. Um, and that this was something that was going on in this place. I would thought about it as just like, these are the books that existed or whatever, but that's definitely not true. It was like part of these move, these movements and a lot of the books, you know, on my shelf and books that I end up drawing inspiration from for writing this book were books that they literally left on the shelf for me to find, you know? And it's sad when you look around now that every one of those stores is closed. Well, we're, okay. So that, that was where I want to sort of get to in the conversation, which was like, you know, like I think that one of the things that I think people on the left are right now are a little bit like, I don't think that there's a clear way in which a critique of tech has emerged that at least to me has seemed particular that doesn't feel in some ways to be like either overly broad or overly specific. Right. Um, so for example, I would just say like, let's say like all this stuff that's coming about out about open AI or something like that, right. Or AI and everything like that, or, or even crypto back like, you know, a couple of years ago, going back like two to six years ago or something like that. Right. That there was, there's always a sort of like knee jerk re rejection of, of these things, right. That, um, oh, this is going to be X, Y, and Z. And that the critique knee jerk re criticism is generally correct. Right. Like, um, I do think that, uh, you know, these things are just money-making machines and most of them are probably, you know, not going to amount to very much. And if they do have a world-changing effect, it'll be negative, right? But, I mean, what? how do you feel, like, you know, having written this book? Like, what What do you think is a good space for a sort of left critique of, of this industry and of, of the people who are sort of clustered here now? Yeah, that's a good question. Because um, I think part of there, there's a a kind of critique that wants to label everyone as scammers, right? That like Silicon Valley and the whole tech industry, they're a bunch of scammers who don't produce anything. None of their companies make any money. They're just leeches on the economy. Um, and you'll see this kind of critique all over, right? From the, from like the right wing uh, all the way to like Marxists who have some under particular understanding of the tech industry as non-productive. Right. Um, which is just see the whole thing as like essentially parasitic and es essentially like con artists. And that's true to a certain degree. You'll see it in certain cases, but at the end of this research, what I came to conclude is that they are doing something and that they're doing something actually very important. It's just not the thing that they say they're doing. And so what they're, what they're really doing is trying to solve this problem of how do you maintain inequality in a globalized world, uh, which is a real like conundrum, right? That's like that. If you looked, told people a hundred years ago around Palo Alto, you know, the leaders of Palo Alto and you said like, how are you going to maintain your position in the world for the next hundred years? They're going to say, you know, like probably not going to be able to do it like really tough, you know, like uh, with anti-colonialism on the March, the world communist movement on the March, the idea that you're going to be able to maintain like, exceptional privileges for some white guys in California uh, seemed implausible, right? Like Mao is going to win. He's going to take over China. Like you're <laughs> toast. Your days are numbered. And they understood that their, their position in the world was like really under threat. Fast forward a hundred years. Like they solved that problem in a lot of ways, right? The game's not over. They, they have a, you, can, you can never end the game as a capitalist because uh, putting people to work for you always involves the potential of them saying like, no, fuck you. I'm going to kill you instead. 
Um, and so it can never be over. You can never end class tensions as a capitalist. But in terms of being able to secure and protect your place in the world and in, indeed enhance your place in the world over that hundred year period, amazing success, like fantastic success, not just for Palo Alto, but for the the elements in the world that Palo Alto exists in service of. Because Palo Alto serves a very particular purpose for people who maintain unequal uh, positions throughout the world, not just like locally in Palo Alto, but like the king of Siam, for example, <laughs> has depended on, you know, Palo Alto uh, to protect his interests in the past, right? Like the Sultan of Brunei right, uh, right, has a right, very particular right. relationship with, uh, with Palo Alto. Um, the Saudis were the Saudis, uh, right? Yeah, they like to today. Elon Musk out for the World Cup, and he mm-hmm. had to watch the game with him when when he was trying to figure out how to raise more money. Yeah, and like yeah, so Silicon Valley, and again, not just right now, and not just five years ago, ten years ago, and not just twenty years ago, um, but like into the nineteenth, into the twentieth and nineteenth centuries, is very important for the world and for like the the structures of inequality in the world. Um, the Palo Alto is an answer to a very complicated uh, problem that is in some ways, I think uh, the way Du Bois pl- phrased it was the problem of the color line, right? That that's the problem of the 20th century. And it's like, how do you maintain an unequal hold on the world for white people in a world where everyone knows about everyone else and white people are a minority? Right. Like, how do you hold on to that privileged place? Um, and, and Palo Alto has been an answer. Yeah, it's, a, it's interesting because it's like in some ways it's a it's not as obvious because like, for example, let's say in Korea. Right. Like you have these families um, that own these gigantic conglomerates and those are the families and they legit they literally pass it to their kids. Right. And so. And there's some history to be written that like some of the Gilded Era families, right? Like you see these sort of country estates or something like that, right? For the people or the hearths, right? For example, that that money is largely still there in some form, but not not like they don't wield a gigantic power over everything like they used to, right? Like the mm-hmm. sort of days of the barons are gone. And so that the specific families are different, right? Um, but you're right. It is still largely like the same class of people. Um, what is interesting to me is whether or not these tech moguls are going to keep it in the family. And I imagine that they kind of won't, right? Like, I mean, they kind of haven't. But you just have something that's a little bit different. Like, it's not just like one one entity with like characters that everybody knows who become famous, right? Like, it is, it is sort of this new like kind of quote-unquote meritocratic thing where you pass it on to like some guy who you've been grooming quietly and then that person becomes a ceo but it but it it shifts back and forth and so like if you compare the the class backgrounds of the first generation of silicon valley guys in the 60s all white guys you know but whatever they're from a diversity of backgrounds whether they're like you know jewish refugees the son of a midwestern preacher you know whatever it's just like a a general cross-section of white guys Um, and if you compare that to the guys of the 80s who tend to be not just uh 
random white guys, but people who happen to go to private schools or happen to be like be in communities of wealth. That's a shift back towards a more familial, like family-based mode of social reproduction, right? And then you go into the people today, you go into like then the like round after those guys, not Steve Jobs, but uh, like Travis Kalanick and like those guys or whatever. Uh, and a lot of those guys are really just acting out privilege, right? And like family privilege and extending it. Um, and so like, yes, that's true. And we see with Stanford University and the founding of Stanford University, the transition from a like traditional aristocratic family-based passing down of privilege to the dispersion of a like bourgeois class in the West of these privileges by the Stanford family. So Herbert Hoover isn't like literally Leland Stanford Jr., but he becomes Leland Stanford Jr. by like stepping into that role. Um, but then you see a, a trend away from that in the last quarter of the 20th century as capital's like orientation to progress and like increased production changes a little bit. And so you see capital ally itself, not with uh, like, you know, the forces of liberalism anymore, as you saw in the beginning of the 19th century, or the 19th century and the early 20th century, but the forces of like patriarchy and reaction. Right. And I talk about in this book that like suddenly capital is like, yeah, we want Kings. We want shakes. We want sultans. Like those are the guys that we want in charge. We don't want to do the like liberal democracy thing anymore, yeah. especially yeah. throughout the third world. Um, we want like people we are, who are politically reliable. And so they weren't more interested in capital was no longer associated with political liberalization at this point because it, it, it runs into a wall, right? In the sixties, where if you extend the the franchise anymore, if you liberalize things anymore, you run into a problem for capital. It's no longer useful. It's no longer the FDR days um, where you can profitably expand things that way. Um, and again, Palo Alto has really shifted to accommodate that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like, I mean, I, where do you sort of see these, you know, some of the conversations that we've had over the past, I would say the majority of them are about protest, right? And forms of resistance. I think it's something that I talked to you about because I think you have interesting thoughts on it. Like, like, what do you think about the idea of, uh, of labor work moving into these spaces, right? Because that's another form of resistance that one can sort of start to facilitate, right? And that, Organized labor. Right. And I've been of the mind and I would say that I think maybe I'm wrong because you write about this in your book, right? You write about some of the history of trying to organize workers in these areas, and especially in these early, like, you know, I don't even know if you would call them tech plants, right? Or these sort of early, early, earliest iterations of what this industry was going to become. My sense of it is that it's very hard to organize these workers, especially mm -hmm. at like the engineer level, because they make a lot of money. They're not particularly political. And they're people who are pretty much happy with what they what what they perceive to be like freedom right like they're like well i don't know i don't even really want to work here very long right like i'm only here to get my potential payout and if i don't get my payout then i'll just move to the next thing and everybody will want me because there aren't enough engineers out here so why would i you know why would i get pay dues into some of this and get weighted down having to take care of other people or whatever i right? think this is the mentality it's pretty strong around here right like yeah do you think that they're like, how do you feel about that? Cause it's like your history of 
the attempts to unionize and some of the people who worked on that was all new to me. You know, I hadn't read any of that. I found it really fascinating. So, yeah. Do you want to talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, there have been various attempts to to organize within tech uh, in the history. I think the, the United Electrical Workers were the, the big ones um, in terms of coming in and trying to, to unionize the industry. Got beaten in the, a couple times. You know, it's, it's a tough one to, to unionize. And especially on the a high end when they've uh, outsourced so many of those jobs, the non-engineering jobs, the non-design jobs. And so you see like on the back of the Apple products, right? Designed in California, made in China or whatever. Um, and that's a, that's an anti-labor strategy, right? So on some level, we have to think of the Foxconn workers as tech workers, right? We have to think about uh, international tech labor and how right. do we draw connections um, between these because that, that is not a stable labor uh, regimen in China right now, like the the future is very up for grabs, right? In in the tech production sector, uh, in a lot of ways, and we need to, labor is obviously crucial to that. In so we need to reach across some of the divisions and the ways that the um, the sector has been divided across um, nations, across languages, across race, across genders, um, very intentionally. And I talk about the whole history of. Um, putting those divisions into place as an anti-labor strategy and one that's been very effective. Um, And so I think like stuff like the tech workers organizing committee, which is uh, I think a upstart, very amorphous sort of attempt to do industrial union organizing, right? Not just like at one place. Cause like, uh, yeah, I think it's gonna be pretty hard to organize like Apple engineers into the Apple engineers union. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that, that's gonna be rough. Like, you, you know, I'm not saying it's impossible and I'm not discouraging anyone who's trying to do that currently. Uh, no, that's a tall hill to climb. Like, that's yeah. rough. Like no one's, no one's done that uh, successfully, right? It's a tough one. And they've got a lot of strategies that's gonna make that really difficult. Right. At the same time, when I look at the history of California labor organizing, so much of it is wildcat industrial organizing uh, outside the official labor movement. And so I would probably be looking more toward those traditions um, for the future, if only because that's like what has worked in the past. And I think uh, it's going to be tricky to get the a toehold for the or- official labor movement, uh, in the area. But I did just see that the, something I think was pretty interesting is the Stanford graduate students just announced a unionizing campaign, uh, with the UE, which is moving, which has moved, uh, pretty hard into graduate student organizing. Um, so yeah. are, are those tech workers? Like they're, they're definitely well, they're part of the tech industry. Tech workers. Yeah. And honestly, if all they accomplish is to like, kind of push them, three degrees to the left or even to knock some of the stupid ideas that some of those people have out of their head, that'll be like a big plus, you know? Um, like the, the, I don't know. Every time I see like a tweet about San Francisco, I hate it's from somebody who went to Stanford. And I well, like, <laughs> I'm going to be, I'm going to be rallying with some of those grad workers uh, on Thursday when I'm in town. So oh, you're coming to town. I'm coming to town. Oh, nice. Nice, uh, nice. Yeah. I'm going to use their, they're going to fly me out to talk to some students and I will, uh, see if we can get some grad cards signed while I'm out there. That's exciting. Um, okay. This is my last question. It has nothing to do with anything about this book, but, um, what, what do you think about all this, like, uh, GPT stuff? 
fake. You think it's fake? Fake. I think there's a, mo- there's a monkey somewhere under a table just <laughs> hitting keys. They've just got they've just employed workers. Um, no, I mean like large language modules uh, have existed forever. We've fifty years. Yeah. We've used this stuff a million times, and I think it's really funny. People like typing into chat box windows and being like, "Oh my god, it's alive!" Oh, well, uh, the big innovation was they made it screenshotable and uh, yeah right exactly um uh it is not clear to me what its relation is to production at any level well that's the thing and so even when people are like oh it's going to replace these jobs all the jobs that they're talking about are like quote unquote bullshit jobs right right and it's like so those jobs don't add anything to productivity anyway so like what is this supposed to do and when i see like you know coca-cola teams up with open ai and it's like to do you better well, not that, be that's like, a stock play that's i like, know but that's yeah. so that's what it all is and so if you look at like who's anyone who's making money off this stuff it's all promotional it's all that's promotional the- that's the other thing that I don't quite get, right? So like with crypto, for example, right? Which is another thing where everyone was like, <laughs> IBM invests in the blockchain, right? right? Exactly. Like, right. Or like blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. Here's the thing about crypto is that any crypto project could print a token and then have wild speculation on that token that would make an independent giant pile of money for whoever was holding that token, Right. It was like this crazy idea where you could have this completely separate funnel of money going into something that anybody with the internet access uh, could do, right? That's not true with this AI stuff, right? Like you can't just invest in open AI, right? Because I don't think it's a publicly traded company. No. Uh, you have you could buy Microsoft stock, like you know, like oh yeah, that's gonna that's so exciting <laughs> for these people. Like that's how I'm gonna be, go from having like yo look at the look at the stock charts for all these companies that have moved into open a, moved into AI. Like you're joking, but they all took serious hits, and they all needed some story to tell about how they were gonna make money in the future. Right, right, right. That's what I. Mean. It's like seven. Like that's not going to. That's not like you know six hundred xing your investment, right? And so then. Like, that's a part I can't quite figure out, which is that, like, well, it is for, for Sam here, Altman. It is for, oh, for it is, Sam Altman. It is for, right? it is for, not like, for me, guys. right? <laughs> but, like, that's where I was thinking about because, like, there was this period of time where very, you know, it was true that a lot of talent here in this Bay Area, like engineering talent, went over to crypto. And the reason why they went over to crypto was because yep. they thought they were going to get rich. I have friends who did this, right? Like, I have a friend who got paid in the coin. Yep. Of the company he was working for, they tried for two to do years. that to they for tried to do that to me for writing. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's they tried right. to. <laughs> there were writing companies that were like, "Get paid, and you know, do you want it cash or do you want our crypto token?" Well, at least they gave you an option, right? So, um, now that is a very different incentive structure than this AI stuff. So that's a part I don't quite get right now. You know, where I'm just like, "All right, where is the money going to come in?" Be- unless you can make a really compelling use case quickly. And then, like, the main marketing that they seem to be doing for it is all this AI doomerism, right? Like, you know, like, oh, we've created something Which no that one cares about. The it's, world. So, it's, like, such a, right. like, niche, like, cult interest. These people are so disconnected, man. My fantasy baseball Slack group has been converted, and they're all AI doomers now. And I, I had to, like, basically quit going in there because I was just like, look, I actually will say that I'm kind of impressed by GPT-4. 
right? Like it does some stuff where I'm just like, wow, this is way better than the language models that I used in grad school. Yeah. But you're right. Until Sam Altman and OpenAI tell us what is in there and that it is not like some like poor MFA graduate be like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> shit. <laughs> shit. Right, faster, faster. Faster. <laughs> <laughs> the mechanical um, turk time, yeah time with like two hands like one on each keyboard just like, oh no <laughs> another one came in no <laughs> yeah this is some a genius child blogger, that's hooked up like it's a like a snowpiercer a blogger at fox was like yo uh tell can you rewrite this article for me or something like that now i have to type with yeah, my shit. foot <laughs> shit. There's another, another one coming. yeah i can oh. <laughs> <laughs> wait no no we need the site to be down put the site down oh Uh, yeah i mean like so obviously anything that can like form original seemingly original sentences like instantly like that is impressive right uh but i've never as a writer i've never had a moment where i looked at it and was like oh i can't do that or like oh shit like this is some threat to me or this is conflicts with what i do at all and so i think it's really funny when writers are like oh god like am i gonna be unemployed because of this thing it's like really impressive i mean like damn like don't tell on yourself like (laughs) (laughs) well well, aren't we all just like assembling random combinations of words based on our input and like no (laughs) like is that what what i said is that what what i said said yeah yeah no we don't i i think think, i think critically like oh yeah i don't pose originally ideas like i don't think i do any of that but i still think i'm better at writing than (laughs) (laughs) but i do think you know it's just seven inputs here at this point you know i used to might have had nine you know but i'm getting older now and i have two kids so i think it's it's been knocked down to seven um okay are you using it like as an assistant is it you're like no i don't use uh not really i mean it the here's the biggest problem with it is that if you want to use it as an assistant in that sort of way then it has to be it has to be factually correct more than like right? it is. And it's always wrong. And so you spend more time like trying to figure out if the stuff that it's saying is right or wrong. And I don't use it for my articles, right? But I use it for some other stuff that I do. And I've tried it. And you spend more time fixing shit, you know? Yes. It is very much like the experience of writing on Adderall. I don't know if you've done that, but Never. I've tried that on a couple occasions. And you do write very fast. And then what you realize that once everything wears off is that you have to rewrite everything because what you wrote is nonsense garbage and it takes longer. So then you just don't do it anymore after a while because you're just like, why would I, this is not saving me any time. And so my experience with GPT trying to use it for other projects has been pretty similar where it's just like, I have to re now I have to redo this. Why don't I just do it myself? I know how to do it. So I don't know. I'm a bit. I'm a bit skeptical, but I think I kind of find that the literary part of it is more interesting than you, but that's just because, you know, I have less of an opinion of our process than you do, I think. (laughs) (laughs) It's my own personal one. Okay. Is there anything else you want to say? Um, This was great. Tons, but I I think we we got through a good bit. So, yeah. uh, So the book is Palo Alto. Uh, I don't know why I just introduced that like I was like Terry Gross or something like that. You know, obviously we've been radio talking show. about for an hour and a half. The um, the book is Palo Alto by yeah, Malcolm by Harris. Malcolm Harris. Buy it. Malcolm, buy the book. Thank, thank book. you for coming on the show. You know, um. <laughs> thank you, thank you so much for having me, Jay. <laughs> 
can't can't uh, wait to come back. The book is great, though. I thought it was thanks, great. man. I you appreciate it. Job. Yeah, I was, I was, uh, I was. They asked me to. I will say, like, somebody asked me to review it, and I was like, first of all, I think I know Malcolm a little bit too well to. I like, I would never write a bad word about Malcolm's book. And so you shouldn't have me review it. But then I was like, man, it's really long. You know, I don't know. I don't know if I can read it. I, See, I was worried when I heard when they were like, yo, Jay's going to write review your book for the New Yorker, probably. And I was like, uh, I don't know, man. Like, he knows me. Like, I don't want someone who knows me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. That, that would have been. I know you too well. I was just like, it's like I, it's not there. There's like levels of people that you kind of know, because, you know, obviously in this industry, we all kind of know each other. But um, I don't know. I was just like, I just don't want to write a review of a book where I just wouldn't say anything bad about the part about the person's book, you know, because I like the person and I don't want I've had bad reviews written about me. I think it sucks. And like, there's no way to be like, hey, man, that's just the game. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. We're still cool, right? Yeah, we're still cool. No, we're not cool. See you on Friday. Yeah. <laughs> I spent yeah. fucking years on that thing and you just <laughs> tore it apart. And you fucking, you fucked up my career. Fuck you. We're not Thanks cool. a lot, jackass. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think this game is? You know, we're not moving millions of dollars of cocaine. You know, we're doing this shit for small <laughs> amounts of money. <laughs> it's about the dignity and you took that from me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah no place. it's true uh you want somebody who can say all sorts of shit but yeah uh, yeah yeah and so i don't know maybe i should have just like you know been like okay that's good but i don't know but i also but it was i don't i know we, we were worried that you were gonna say yes write a whole thing and then they were gonna cut it because they're like oh no don't you guys know each other never mind right well that was also the thought i had was like i don't want to do all this work and then you know, have them ask and then me have to very honestly say, no, I know him, of course, you know, but yeah. you get, I don't know. Book reviewing is crazy. I'm not talking yeah. about the New Yorker here, but like there are all sorts of book reviews that are written where you're just like, aren't you that person's yeah. friend? <laughs> don't you know that? Isn't that your kid? I saw you with that person <laughs> two weeks ago and you guys are friends, you know? <laughs> Isn't that your ex? Like- <laughs> yeah, exactly. You guys are buddies. Don't lie about this, you know? Like, why would you do that? You yeah, know? I try not to do weird. that. Um, okay. Well, all right. Let's put an end to this. Thank cool. you for listening to the show. Uh, Malcolm, do you have any more book events or anything coming up? Well, like I said, for your listeners, if this is going on the 5th, then uh, if you are a a member of the Stanford community, look for me around campus because I might be around. We have a lot of, I think we do have a lot of people who are in Palo Alto and we have a ton of Bay Area listeners, first of all. Just to um, just listen to you abuse them, just like listen to this guy from Cal, just like talk shit about Stanford. (laughs) I I didn't even go to Cal. I just live near Cal. I don't even from Cal around Cal. A guy who lives around Cal whose main complaint is that all the students have coronavirus. (laughs) I don't want them anywhere near me. (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, Yes. If you'd like to contact our show, it's time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the show, it's goodbye.substack.com or patreon.com slash TTSG pod. Malcolm, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jay. Oh, <laughs>